0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2011 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article this month discusses the fact that various algorithms have been developed for the treatment of schizophrenia, but that there hasn't been much examination of outcomes of these algorithms. To address this deficiency, a group from the University of Toronto used a naturalistic design to look at response rates across three prospective antipsychotic trials. This study, which reports no sponsorship, included 244 patients with first-episode schizophrenia who were treated using an algorithm that moved them through two antipsychotic trials and then a trial with clozapine. For the first two trials, treatment consisted of risperidone followed by olanzapine, or vice versa, and each trial consisted of low-dose, full-dose, and high-dose stages, each lasting up to four weeks. The overall rate of response to the initial treatment was high at 75%, with 82% for olanzapine and 66% for risperidone. A considerably lower response rate of 20% occurred with the second antipsychotic trial— Results, therefore, suggested greater effectiveness for olanzapine than risperidone. Among individuals who agreed to a third trial with clozapine, the response rate climbed back up to 75%. A subsequent trial with clozapine is clearly warranted, although it's unclear whether the outcome would be enhanced if clozapine were used earlier in the treatment algorithm. Our next article reports an analysis of data from the Telemedicine Enhanced Antidepressant Management, or TEAM study, a multi-site, randomized effectiveness trial targeting U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs primary care patients with depression. The purposes of this study, which was supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Institute of Mental Health, were to assess the impact of a depression intervention on the persistence of comorbid generalized anxiety disorder among these depressed patients and to identify risk factors for persistent generalized anxiety disorder. 168 veterans, aged 26 to 88 years, received either the team intervention or usual care. The primary outcome was persistence of generalized anxiety disorder at 6 and 12 months. The investigators examined all predictors available in the team study data that were described in the literature to be associated with influencing anxiety disorder outcomes. Persistence of depression was the strongest predictor of persistence of comorbid generalized anxiety at both 6 and 12 months. The team intervention significantly reduced depression symptom severity, but it was not significantly associated with persistence of generalized anxiety. Insomnia proved to be a significant protective factor for persistence of generalized anxiety at six months. Early screening for the presence of comorbid generalized anxiety disorder among those with MDD may be valuable for both further research and for enhancing clinical management of these comorbidities. Clearly more research is needed about strategies for treating persistent anxiety among those with MDD Quetiapine when combined with lithium or divalproex has demonstrated efficacy in the maintenance treatment of bipolar 1 disorder our next article reports on a study by an international group of researchers investigating the efficacy and safety of quetiapine monotherapy as maintenance treatment in bipolar 1 disorder compared with switching to placebo or lithium. Patients aged 18 years and older with DSM-4 bipolar 1 disorder and a current or recent manic, depressive, or mixed episode received open-label quetiapine for 4 to 24 weeks. Patients achieving stabilization were randomized to continue quetiapine or switch to placebo or lithium for up to 104 weeks in a double-blind trial. Outcome measures included times to recurrence of any mood event, the primary outcome measure, any manic event or any depressive event. The study, conducted between March 2005 and July 2007, was terminated early after a planned interim analysis provided positive results. Of the more than 2,400 patients who started open-label quetiapine, about 50% were randomized to double-blind treatment. Time to recurrence of any mood event was significantly longer for quetiapine versus placebo and for lithium versus placebo. Quetiapine and lithium significantly increased the time to recurrence of both manic events and depressive events compared with placebo. In patients stabilized during acute quetiapine treatment, continuation of quetiapine significantly increased time to recurrence of any mood event, or any manic or depressive event, compared with switching to placebo. Switching to lithium was also more effective than placebo for prevention of manic and depressive events. This study was supported by AstraZeneca. Humans are inherently social creatures. The yearning for social bonds is a fundamental human drive that, if left unfulfilled, has a detrimental impact on health. Numerous studies have examined the relationship between social networks and health, and evidence has shown that this is a complex relationship when it comes to psychiatric disorders. Isolation from two specific types of social relationship, close friends and acquaintances made during participation in religious activities, is particularly interesting and worthy of further investigation because these relationships are the most discretionary of human relationships and isolation from these may have a stronger harmful effect on mental health than isolation from blood relationships. The authors of our next article looked at data from a cross-sectional population-based study of over 30,000 adults in the United States to document the prevalence of social isolation from close friends and religious group members, and to test the association of infrequent contact with close friends and members of religious groups with the current DSM-IV mood, anxiety, and substance use disorders. They found that many Americans lacked frequently contacted close friends or religious group members in their social network. After adjusting for sociodemographic variables, lifetime diagnosis of the disorder in question, and social isolation in terms of ten other social ties, they found that the absence of close friends was associated with an increased risk of major depressive disorder, dysthymic disorder, social phobia, and generalized anxiety disorder. The absence of frequently contacted religious group members was positively related to alcohol abuse and dependence, drug abuse, and nicotine dependence. These results suggest that social isolation is common in the United States and is associated with higher risk of mental health problems. The results provide valuable information for prevention, and treatment. How long should an appropriate trial of antidepressant medication be? In a secondary analysis of data obtained from the Genome-Based Therapeutic Drugs for Depression study, European and British researchers sought to answer this question. In the original study, 811 treatment-seeking adults with dsm four major depressive disorder received s or nortriptyline for 12 weeks. Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale measurements were taken weekly. In their secondary analysis, the researchers found that a model with nine latent classes described well the individual trajectories of symptom change over time. These classes included three non-responder classes, three classes with varying degrees of improvement concentrated in the first three weeks, or early improvement, and three classes with varying degrees of improvement were prominent in the second three weeks, or delayed improvement. More than half of the subjects who eventually reached remission showed a pattern of delayed improvement, and their eventual outcome could not be predicted from early time points. Early marked response occurred more frequently in subjects treated with nortriptyline than those treated with escitalopram. Delayed complete remission occurred more frequently in subjects treated with escitalopram than those treated with nortriptyline. The researchers found both early and delayed improvement common. Early changes were maintained, but the eventual outcome of 12-week antidepressant treatment could be accurately predicted only after 8 weeks. A prominent limitation of literature on duration of untreated psychosis is that researchers have studied only unidimensional duration as an early course predictor. This approach neglects the potential effects of frequency and or severity of initial untreated psychosis. The authors of this NIMH-funded study demonstrate the utility of the concept of doses of initial untreated hallucinations and delusions as representing more complete measures of exposure thereby serving as enhanced predictors of symptomatology and or functioning relative to a duration of untreated psychosis alone. The authors assessed over 100 first-episode patients with a psychotic disorder at three public sector psychiatric units, serving an urban, socially disadvantaged, predominantly African-American community. Dependent variables included negative symptoms, general psychopathology, insight, and global functioning at initial hospitalization. The study produced several interesting findings. First, regarding first episode negative symptoms, the duration of untreated psychosis was a significant predictor, but total dose of initial untreated psychosis and doses of hallucinations or delusions did not individually add significant predictive value. Second, general psychopathology symptoms were not predicted by duration of untreated psychosis, but the dose of delusions was a significant independent predictor. Third, duration of untreated psychosis was not a significant predictor of insight. The authors conclude that doses of initial, untreated hallucinations and delusions add substantively, though differentially, to the prediction of early course symptomatology and functioning. They call for focused research on frequency and severity of pretreatment psychotic symptoms beyond duration measures. Next, Grant and colleagues present nationally representative findings on the first study to examine the temporal relationships between overweight and obesity and DSM for substance use, mood, and anxiety disorders. The absence of this type of large national perspective survey of U.S. adults has represented a gap in our knowledge about the etiology, prevention, intervention, and economic costs for all these conditions. This study, supported by the National Institutes of Health, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, included U.S. civilian adults from waves one and two of the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, or NESARC. The main outcome measures were the incidence of dsm four substance use, mood and anxiety disorders, and changes in body mass index during the three-year follow-up period between wave one and two of NISARC. Regression analyses revealed the following, one, overweight and obese women were at increased risk for MDD during the follow-up period. Two, obese women had a decreased risk of alcohol abuse and drug dependence. three. Overweight and obese men were at decreased risk of drug abuse and alcohol dependence, and four, men with drug dependence and women with specific phobia had decreased risk of becoming overweight or obese. This study showed important gender differences in the temporal relationships between overweight and obesity and specific psychiatric disorders. Identification of additional psychosocial and biological factors impacting these relationships within a longitudinal study starting in early childhood is urgently needed. When SSRIs were introduced in the late 1980s, concerns soon followed that the new medications were possibly linked to an increased risk of suicidality in adult patients. Although subsequent research indicated no such association, in recent years, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration initiated steps to reexamine the relationship between antidepressant use and suicidality in adults. The authors of our next article have contributed to this effort by conducting a meta-analysis of placebo-controlled paroxetine trials that examined suicidality incidents in adults, with a focus on disorder and age as potential risk factors. They put their findings in context with an efficacy meta-analysis of the same trial data sets. GlaxoSmithKline funded the study. The analysis included all double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, parallel group studies of paroxetine therapy that enrolled at least 30 adult patients. The data set comprised nearly 15,000 patients from 61 trials. Possible cases of suicidality were identified and categorized in a blinded manner by an expert panel. Incidences of suicidal behavior and suicidality were compared between paroxetine and placebo groups. Efficacy assessments were based on standard depression scale scores. Across all disorders, overall suicidality incidence was similar between paroxetine and placebo. However, A higher frequency of suicidal behavior occurred with paroxetine in major depressive disorder, which was largely explained by the higher incidence in young adults. These data support the efficacy of paroxetine therapy. However, they also highlight the need for careful monitoring of suicidality during antidepressant therapy, particularly in younger adults. Bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are severe mental disorders with overlapping symptomatology and common genetic determinants. Increased HPA axis activation is documented in both disorders and is proposed to be part of the pathophysiology in both disorders. HPA axis dysregulation is a promising target for pharmacotherapy in bipolar disorder and seems to be associated with treatment response in schizophrenia. However, the underlying mechanism of HPA axis dysregulation is largely unknown. An intriguing possibility is that dysregulation of systemic cortisol metabolism could play a role. Our next group of investigators from Norway note that this possibility has received little attention, and to the best of their knowledge, there are no studies on cortisol metabolizing enzymes in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. They therefore sought to uncover the activities of enzymes in systemic cortisol metabolism in DSM-IV diagnosed bipolar and schizophrenia patients and in healthy controls by analyzing urinary-free cortisol, cortisone, and cortisol metabolites. Would systemic cortisol metabolism be enhanced in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia as compared to healthy controls? Would systemic cortisol metabolism be similar in both disorders as demonstrated by no differences in enzyme activities? The results indicate increased activity of cortisol metabolism in both disorders as compared to healthy controls and suggest that increased systemic cortisol metabolism is involved in the pathophysiology and stress vulnerability in these two severe mental disorders, providing support for the HPA axis dysregulation hypothesis. These findings should be explored further in terms of potential new drug targets, and they add to the physiologic rationale for stress-coping strategies in these patient groups. The obvious need for improved prediction of suicide completion is complicated by the fact that, fortunately, suicide completion is a rare event. One angle research could take to help clinicians be better able to identify persons likely to follow through with suicide would be to focus on improving predictability in those who have attempted suicide. These individuals are 38 times more likely to complete suicide than the general population. To this end, the authors of our next article examine the predictive power of the self-harm subscale of the Schedule for Non-Adaptive and Adaptive Personality, or the SNAP, to identify suicide attempters in their National Institute of Mental Health-funded, multi-site, naturalistic, prospective study of patients with personality disorders. The investigators analyzed baseline scores on the self-harm subscale of the SNAP among 701 study participants with follow-up data, 129 of whom attempted suicide over eight years of follow-up. They found that the SNAP self-harm subscale demonstrated Good predictive power for suicide attempts and appeared relatively consistent across diagnoses of borderline personality disorder, major depressive disorder, and substance use disorder. Receiver operating characteristic analyses indicated several cutoff scores on the SNAP self-harm subscale that yield moderate to high sensitivity and specificity for predicting suicide attempts over the first year of follow-up the authors conclude that the self-harm subscale of the SNAP may be a useful screening instrument for risk of suicide attempts in non-psychotic psychiatric patients. Last, but certainly not least, we round out this podcast with several articles from our November Women's Mental Health section. As part of this section, we offer our very first online-only article, a commentary by Steiner and colleagues who bring us an update on research into the link between estrogen and serotonin. The lifetime prevalence of depression is twice as high in women compared to men. Epidemiologic studies suggest that the increased risk begins after menarche, with some women developing significant premenstrual mood symptoms. Pregnancy and postpartum are also times of vulnerability, and some argue that estrogen fluctuations influence the risk of depression. The menopausal transition appears to be another window of risk, and depressive symptoms may accompany complaints such as hot flashes. Animal and human studies have provided strong evidence that estrogen regulates serotonin pathways at various levels. Clinical studies have confirmed the antidepressant properties of estrogen, particularly transdermal estradiol in perimenopausal women. Imaging studies also showed that estrogen replacement increases serotonergic activity. The general trend that emerges is that administering estrogen increases serotonin availability by altering messenger RNA and protein levels of various serotonin markers and by decreasing serotonin breakdown. The evidence that estrogen increases serotonin neurotransmission has important implications. A better understanding of the crosstalk between estrogen and serotonin at the molecular level should ultimately influence the diagnosis and treatment of depression across the female life cycle. Please visit us online at psychiatrist.com to access this excellent commentary on depression in women and new insights into the link between estrogen and serotonin. Postpartum psychosis is a rare but severe illness that has been described as the abrupt onset of affective and psychotic symptoms within four weeks of delivery. Although bipolar disorder is an important risk factor for this illness, the majority of patients with postpartum psychosis have no psychiatric history. In our next article, Bergink and colleagues describe their prospective cohort study of 51 women admitted to an inpatient facility while experiencing a first psychotic episode during the postpartum period. Women with a history of psychosis or mania outside the postpartum period were excluded. A control group was included through a population-based study. All patients received naturalistic treatment using a combination of an antipsychotic and lithium. The investigators examined obstetric history, breastfeeding, neonatal outcomes, and onset of illness. Clinical remission was defined as the absence of psychotic, manic, and depressive symptoms for at least one week. The authors found that Compared to the general population control group, women with postpartum psychosis had a significantly higher incidence of parity. There were no significant differences in delivery-related, lactational, or neonatal-related risk factors. The median time to onset of psychiatric symptoms was 8 days postpartum. The median duration of episode was 40 days. Depressive symptoms were associated with a later onset and longer duration of episode. Psychotic symptoms were mood incongruent in a majority of patients. The authors conclude that first-onset postpartum psychosis has a distinct risk profile and phenomenology compared to postpartum psychosis in patients with bipolar disorder. Treatment with a combination of lithium and an antipsychotic led to high rates of remission. Treating mothers with mood disorders is critical for the health of the mother and the well-being of the child. Although there is extensive research on maternal depression, very little is known about other types of maternal mood disorders such as bipolar disorder. An article by Boyd and colleagues looks at the rates and risks of mood disorders in African-American, Caribbean black, and non-Hispanic white mothers. The data were collected as part of the National Survey of American Life Coping with Stress in the 21st Century, which is the most comprehensive study of the mental health of black Americans to date. The authors report that lifetime prevalence of mood disorders is higher for white mothers than for both African-American mothers and Caribbean black mothers. However, 12-month mood disorder rates are similar across all groups. African-American mothers have a higher 12-month prevalence of bipolar disorder than white mothers and Caribbean black mothers. African-American mothers with higher education levels and white mothers who became parents as teenagers are more likely to have a lifetime mood disorder. Less than half of black mothers diagnosed with a mood disorder within the past year use mental health services. This study suggests that more attention should be paid to African-American mothers with bipolar disorder. The higher prevalence rate among these mothers, coupled with their reduced use of services, demonstrates a significant need. Anorexia nervosa is a psychiatric illness affecting up to 1% of college-aged women and is characterized by self-induced starvation and associated severe bone loss. Oxytocin is a peptide hormone that has been implicated in appetite regulation. In addition, oxytocin is thought to promote bone formation by favoring bone over fat production in the marrow. However, little is known about oxytocin secretion in anorexia nervosa or the role of oxytocin in anorexia nervosa-induced bone loss. The authors, therefore, determined to investigate oxytocin levels in anorexia nervosa and the relationship of oxytocin to bone mineral density, fat mass, and leptin levels. Their cross-sectional study included 36 women. 17 with anorexia nervosa, and 19 healthy controls. Participants were hospitalized overnight, and oxytocin levels were determined from pooled serum samples obtained every 20 minutes from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Fasting leptin levels were also measured. Body composition and bone mineral density at the anterior, posterior, and lateral spine and hip were assessed by dual-energy X-ray absorptiometry. The investigators found that nocturnal oxytocin levels were significantly decreased in women with anorexia nervosa compared to healthy women. Decreased oxytocin levels were associated with low fat mass, low leptin levels, and low bone mineral density at the anterior, posterior, and lateral spine. The authors conclude that the relationship between decreased oxytocin levels and low bone mass in anorexia nervosa raises the question of whether decreased oxytocin secretion may contribute to the severe bone loss seen in this disorder. They caution that further research will be important to determine whether there is a causal link. The next and final article in our women's mental health section takes us full circle in a sense, in that the commentary that began the section and this final article are both estrogen-related. A number of studies have found gender differences in epidemiology, clinical presentation, course and treatment response in schizophrenia, Findings showing that schizophrenia in women is less common, has a later onset, and tends to have a less severe course, have given rise to the estrogen hypothesis of schizophrenia, which posits that estrogen has a protective effect in women who are susceptible to this illness. Raloxifene, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, appears to act similarly to conjugated estrogens on brain systems and may be a better treatment option since it lacks possible negative effects of estrogen on breast and uterine tissue. A group of investigators from Spain who were supported by the Stanley Medical Research Institute aimed to assess the utility of 60 mg a day of adjunctive raloxifene for negative symptoms and other psychotic symptoms in postmenopausal women with DSM-4 schizophrenia in a 12-week, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. 33 women were randomized to either adjunctive raloxifene or adjunctive placebo. Symptoms were assessed at baseline and weeks 4, 8, and 12 with the positive and negative syndrome scale. The addition of raloxifene to regular antipsychotic treatment significantly reduced negative, positive, and general psychopathological symptoms during the 12-week trial as compared to adjunctive placebo. If more extensive, longer-term studies confirm and expand upon these positive results, riloxifene could be recommended in postmenopausal women with schizophrenia. In addition to all the excellent articles, this month we highlight an important case report by Michael Paulsen and colleagues related to cytochrome P450 polymorphism. They report the case of a 55-year-old woman with ultra-rapid metabolizing status for CYP2D6. This phenotype leads to problems finding adequate therapeutic doses of psychopharmacotherapy due to the inability to achieve therapeutic plasma drug concentrations. In this case, only with a therapeutic regimen that bypassed liver function was partial remission finally achieved. I direct you to Psychiatrist.com for all the details of this challenging and informative scenario. This month, we also offer letters and book reviews, as well as interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.